Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, as you probably know, last week, for the first time ever, the MK3D show wasn't live from the BFI South Bank, which is, of course, closed due to coronavirus, but we did it online. There was a version of the show that went online on YouTube. We had a number of guests, and because we had so many guests, we had to cut a lot of the interviews down for that YouTube broadcast. So... Here on Kermit on Film, we're going to be playing loads more of those interviews in their full, uncut versions. Coming up later in this show, we have longer interviews with Neve Algar and Cosmo Jarvis from Calm With Horses, and Jack Howard and I catch up on what he's been doing under lockdown. But let's start with Gugu and Barter Raw. Gugu, welcome to uh, MK3D, the first visual, uh, the first virtual one that we've that we've done because of lockdown. How fabulous that we are able to do this through the miracle of the internet. Where are you? Where am I speaking to you? I'm in LA. Um, I'm in uh, an area of LA called Beechwood, Beechwood Canyon, um, which is is lovely. It's very um, very hot today. <laughs> it's going up to the thirties today, and um, you know I was working in Atlanta. Uh, when all of this lockdown started and um, wasn't sure whether to come back to the UK or, you know, how long it was all going to last. There was so much uncertainty. So I ended up coming back to my place in LA. Um, There are worse places to be, I have to say. There's lots of space here, so um, it's, it's nice. Are you able to get out and, and have a walk? You're not, you're not confined to quarters, as it were. Yeah, yeah. No, I've got a nice little bit of outdoor space and... Um, yeah, there's, it's a lovely neighbourhood. I mean, they closed all the all the parks and there's lots of hiking trails, obviously, in LA, you know, hiking and beaches and things, and those are all closed. But I can still walk around the neighbourhood and um, walk up to the little grocery store up on the hill and all of those kind of things. So so it's, it's nice. I mean, I, I try not to drive anywhere. Um, I've just become very hermity. I'm sort of getting into it. <laughs> Um, yeah, but the new forest sounds amazing. The new forest is lovely. There's the, the, the upside of it is that, you know, we have a dog, so I you know, walk the dog once a day, so that's really great. And so, you know, yeah. get out to walk in the forest, which is really lovely. The downside of it, although this is a very small downside, is that the internet here is, on a good day, we get three megabytes. That's on a really oh, wow. good day. Generally, it's about one. <laughs> so most of my conversations with people on Zoom, I, 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 
God, that's so frustrating. It's like an enforced um, digital detox. (laughs) Yeah. But, but actually, you know, it's, um, the thing I'm finding the hardest and this is pathetic. This, this is just the ultimate demonstration of first world problems. Mm. I can't, I haven't had a haircut now for, for four weeks and my hair is usually really, and it's driving me nuts. You haven't tried, you haven't tried to do a DIY little trim. I'm terrified. I've got a pair of um, electric clippers, right? But, right. but the thing is, it's like, because usually it's like a 0.5 and then a 1, right? Yeah. You get that wrong, you look like <laughs> Billy Bibber out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's, it's, and I'm, you know, part of me is thinking, I can't stand, because my hair doesn't get long. My hair just goes out. It just gets Oh, big. same. Same. <laughs> yeah, but you look fabulous. I'm, you I'm still. Start- you got to embrace it, I think. Okay, well, yeah, but I've got this. I've got this thing at the back, and honestly, it's starting to feel like a mullet. Oh God! I, Working on a ponytail. My... Watch out! Yeah, because I'm bald at the back, and bald at the back with a ponytail is a particularly hot look. I hear it's it's what people are wearing at the moment. I know that's the thing. I think post quarantine, it's going to be so interesting. All the haircuts and people running to the barber shop, and you know, all the things that everybody is going to be, you know, and and the things you embrace as well, like people just like shaving their heads, and I don't know, just kind of saying, oh, it's a whole new look, and just going with it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Now, were you in the process of filming something when lockdown happened? Did you have to stop a production or had had you, had you? Yeah, I was working on um, this show called Loki for Marvel, which Mm -hmm. is the spin-off of um, Tom Hiddleston's character from the Thor films. And um, yeah, I was actually on set uh, (laughs) when I got the news. Uh, I mean, you know, I'd I'd just come back to London uh, to promote Misbehaviour. Uh, which, you know, we sort of got that trip in sort of by the skin of our teeth, really. And I I got, you know, it was crazy because we had the premiere in London on the Monday and I flew back to Atlanta on the Tuesday, worked Wednesday, Thursday, and then by the Friday, by the end of the week, we were put into hiatus and (laughs) it was, you know, essentially, um, you know, lockdown. So it was a whirlwind week coming from, you know, the premiere at the beginning of the week and then, you know, by the end of the week, you can't go to work. And, you know, pretty much two days later, there's a travel ban and, you know, stay in your house kind of thing. And are you managing to get any work done at home? Are you like, do you, do you rehearse or your vocals or you write or what are you doing? I mean, not for the show as such, but, you know, I have been trying to, <laughs> as most actors, convert my closet space into a, a sound studio. <laughs> trying to, I've been getting more, um, you know, there's a few voice uh, things that have come my way. So I've been trying to see what I can technically manage from home. Um, I mean, I'm not the most tech savvy person but this has been a great opportunity for me to learn and get some of the kit and some of the um stuff together so we'll see see i'm still working on that like every other actor i think trying to kind of up their, their <laughs> voice and uh, voiceover and uh, audiobook game from home um so that's been a fun technical challenge and doesn't come naturally to me really um you know it's been really nice just to be able to read and you know read novels i i, I read so much um for work you know read so many scripts and things that are research for projects and just to be able to read for pleasure has been really nice and I think also one of the bonuses I think is I've rediscovered painting um, which is something that I really really loved growing up and for me it was kind of a toss-up between painting or art and acting when I was about 17 and you know um, so I ended up choosing acting because it was a bit more collaborative and 
painting and drawing just got me into this very sort of isolated headspace, which ironically is sort of perfect now because it's a nice creative outlet. Um, but it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I need anybody for it. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, and then, and then just reading and keeping up, but, um, but yeah, sometimes it's nice to have a little retreat. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, look, as an artistic retreat. On the subject of painting, let me just quickly show you something. I, um, I play double bass quite badly, but I ended up for a while, I did something with the Jules Holland band and one member of the Jules Holland band paints as a, as a kind of, as a hobby. And he said, do you mind if I paint a picture? Uh, just because of where I am, I happen to have it here. This is not, this is not planned. I'm just going to show you because it's really fab. Okay. I've never, ever had my portrait painted before and I will probably never have it painted again. But this is by the drummer of the Jules Holland band. Okay. Whoa, that's a, that's a painting. That's a painting. How wow, the do I look is amazing. In that? Isn't that great? I, I've never looked that good in my whole life. It's and very that's a painting cool. By, that's a drummer's painting. All right, let me get that's my sketchbook. Okay. <laughs> okay, hang on. Let me see what's worthy of uh, going out there. Well, the latest picture I did is of um, my friend Jessica Swale, who... Um, okay. who directed Summerland, which is the film okay. that we did together with Gemma Arterton, and that's... Uh, my little effort wow um, wow okay so you're a proper painter well it's crazy because i really haven't picked up a, a paintbrush seriously since i was 18 which is a long time ago uh so um you know i've done the odd um live drawing class but um i don't know it's fun it's one of those things where i think you know as an actor you're constantly um being other people and you're constantly researching. And I think sometimes just to do something that makes you lose track of time, you know, that sort of, um, cause I've got so much time at the moment, you know, that sort of <laughs> flow state to be able to, to reconnect with that is, is really fun. Well, I can, honestly, on the basis of that, when you said like, this is just something I'm not together, I was expecting to see, you know, something that looked amateurish. But no, you pr produce something that looks, you know, properly professional. Oh, well, it's, you know, what I've got, what I've got here. I haven't even bought any mat extra materials. You know, it's all in a sketchbook, no fancy yeah. canvases or anything. But um, OK, OK. Now, look, yeah. you, you said that um, just before all this happened, you came over for the Misbehaviour premiere. Of course, it opened in cinemas and I re reviewed it yeah. at the time and I liked it very, very much. Really, really enjoyed it. And mm -hmm. then uh, one of the things that happened with Locked down is that the film became available digitally so mm. we digitally downloaded it here for that house and me and my wife and my son all sat and watched it just a couple of nights ago and uh, oh, wow. loved it all over again oh. and uh, had a little bit of a twitter interaction with philip Lothorpe saying you know the second time around i enjoyed it so much just uh, for those who haven't seen it and now will be able to access it on um you know on uh, digital uh, services give us a, a, a just a quick background to what the story is because of course it's a stranger than fiction true story and it's yeah. one of those things that you couldn't have made it up. No, it's amazing. I mean, it's such a collision in history of all these events that happened in 1970, where um, around the Miss World competition, which was the most watched um, you know, TV program in the world at the time, um, the women's liberation movement, who were relatively newly formed in London, stormed the ceremony and completely disrupted it on live TV and threw flower bombs at Bob Hope and uh, you know it was a huge disruption but it was also the same year that the first woman of color Miss Grenada Jennifer Hostin who I play won the competition so it's it's very intersectional if you like in terms of you know uh, the birth of feminism um, in in many ways and that sort of media springboard that they had 
um, with all of that publicity. But also, you know, perceptions of beauty and women of color being perceived as, you know, eligible to be beauty queens on the on the on the world stage. Um, so it's really it's sort of a fascinating, you know, combination of, of things, and it's a true story, <laughs> which, as you say, is kind of unbelievable. Um, and it's really fun as well. I mean, I think you know especially you know how topical all of the themes of the women's movement have become in the last few years and the legacy of that and me too and everything um but this is really fascinating as well to see you know the period 1970 you know the the costumes and the music and you know there is a sort of slight kitsch element to it and you know it's done with um done with the light touch i think but um but i love the fact that it's also you know really about something I think the thing that that really impressed me about it, and just as much the second time round, is how much fun it is to watch. Because mm. it's a, you know it is it's a really important story, and as you say, it's dealing with intersectionality, which is a word I confess I've only learnt in the last month. Oh wow! Oh my God, Mark, and come on! I know, I know. I'm sorry. I just I feel like such I feel like <laughs> such a dinosaur. No, um, and, well, I think it is. In it's you know, I mean, it was coined by I think Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, in the. 90s maybe earlier but i i know it's something that long, we've been long time about. ago yeah 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 but the thing but what i really really loved was that so it's dealing with quite you know quite complex issues of intersectionality and but it's doing it in a way which is really funny and i mean i it, it, there are times when it's playing like a like a comedy there's um linda my wife when she was watching it when there was the stuff with the meeting of the different women's groups you know from the from the mm. squat saying we never have the television linda said this is literally like watching a film of my past oh wow we see the communes with the with the rebels <laughs> but what but what's great is the the lightness of touch with which it's done and it seems to me that what philip lothorpe has done is to tell that story in a way which is like okay anyone can watch this as a piece of entertainment you don't need to go into it with an agenda you watch it because it's really entertaining and then it tells you this really important story absolutely and, and i felt that the moment i read the script i mean i you know i didn't really see myself as a miss world candidate you know and i think to be quite frank i was relatively judgmental about beauty competitions you know um it's not really something that i looked into much and 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 reading the script it was so sparkly and you know there was a wit to it and uh, as you say you don't need it's not his, it is based on his historical fact but it's not it doesn't feel like it's ramming it down your throat you know it's funny and i think i love the all the different points of view that it expresses, um, you know, from Kira Knightley's character, you know, who's sort of um, drawn into the the sort of women's liberation movement to sort of a more militant feminist <laughs> played by Jessie Buckley, you know, and then the generational differences of, you know, um, Kira's character's mother, um, you know, and how she looks at Miss World and, um, and the, the daughters. And, you know, I just think it's really just uh, got all of the sort of layers and, and nuances. And it's really funny. I mean, BC fans who plays... <laughs> Eric Morley, you know, who is a bit of a slime ball, to be honest, but, you know, but, but he, you know, it, it's just funny, I think, that we can look back at that period and hopefully laugh, hopefully celebrate how far feminism has come, but also, you know, take a sigh of relief that, um, you know, women are not referred to, you know, in that way, and that's not really, you know, the standard today. I was kind of shocked, um, watching it because of course when I, I mean in 1970 I was seven years old mm. but I do remember the whole family sitting down and watching Miss World wow. and when we didn't think there was anything weird about it at all because mm. everybody sat down and watched Miss World and then you watch it on the film you think 
we watched this. Yeah. I mean, I it's, it it's really genuinely <laughs> creepy. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the amazing thing about, you know, even Bob Hope, they didn't really have to do much to the script, to, to the words that Greg Kinnear says as Bob Hope, you know, in terms of how he referred to women as, you know, or this cattle market and, you know, used all of this analogy comparing them to horses and cows and, you know, just so um, degrading and misogynistic. And, you know, and I think the wonderful thing going back to Philippa Lothorpe of how she captured that is that she really sort of makes it from the female gaze and, you know, you get those moments that you when I watch the original footage where the women really turn their <laughs> bottoms to the audience for sort of more of an appraisal and you think wow that's just so humiliating I can't believe they did that you know and I think what Philippa really felt strongly about having that moment in the film but also you know turning the camera around so that you get to see the women's faces and you get to mm. see the gritted teeth and you get to see the sort of um the humiliation and what really from their point of view what what they're going through so um so yeah i i loved working with her for, for that and you know the fact that she really wanted to kind of show that that dimension there's a scene in the film that i have to say i was kind of worried about in advance because there's, there's always um in 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 these kind of dramas there'll be a scene in which the the, the central issues are laid out and there is a scene in which you and Kira knightley's character find themselves in a bathroom together and i literally when the scene happened i thought oh please don't blow this please don't blow this <laughs> and i actually think it's my favorite scene in the film and i think oh. it was done just perfectly because it was the thing about because i'm very big on show don't tell yeah. And what's lovely about it is it's not what's said, it's what isn't said because it's mm. very short. They're kind of having a very in-depth discussion, but it's with very short, simple phrases. Yeah. And I thought that scene was handled really beautifully. Did you have any anxiety about it at all? Because that's the moment that the whole thing could have, pardon my yeah. <laughs> funny because that is the only scene and the only time that me and Kira actually share the screen and, and you know very much you're, you're following these parallel stories of the women's liberation movement and the beauty queens and, and they don't really you know mix and it's not that they're against each other per se I mean I think that the um, you know, the women's liberation movement were more against the, the patriarchy itself, the institution yeah. of that rather than the women personally but, um, but yeah I mean I think when I read that scene I, I, I was a bit trepidatious because I thought wow this is important and and it really is um it really gets to the crux of of the argument there um but I also just felt like it, it had to be there in a way mm -hmm. I think that's what made the film for me going from sort of the, the the macro of protests and pageantry and everything feels so theatrical and big and then just to the intimacy of two women in a powder room essentially or ladies toilets you know and what that is and it, it brings that conversation just to such a, a more intimate relatable way mm. so yeah it was i was sort of you know daunted by it and, it and it was one of the last scenes i think that i shot so um yeah but it was you know again great to kind of have that moment with kira and great really for my character to sort of articulate her point of view and the opportunities, um, you know, and, and that they basically were both, you know, doing the best that they could with, with in the world that they're in and the opportunities available to them. Yeah, I think, you, well, I think you both play that scene beautifully because I think it would be so easy to get it wrong. And I think you both get it absolutely right. And, and like I said, even watching it again the second time, 
I think that though this is really good. This is really, really well handled. I'm, uh, I would recommend anybody to, uh, to, to watch Misbehaviour. As I said, it's available digitally now. And, you know, it, it's a shame that the cinema run was curtailed. But, you know, I think people will enjoy it at home, particularly now because it's a time when you need something that's got substance, but also it sort of feels uplifting. I must yeah. ask you very quickly. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Amrisanti and I'm a huge fan of Belle <laughs> and my family from the Isle of Man. So, oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> militantly Manx. So, um, I'm I'm imagining that you still have good memories of Making Bell, which is just such a terrific film, and again, a very important story, but told in a way you know, Amma said, kind of almost like making a sort of a costume drama that just happened to have this really solid political story behind it. Do you have good memories of Making Bell? Oh, amazing memories. And, you know, I'm actually still incredibly close to Sarah Gadden, who played my sister cousin in, in, in the film. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, that was just such a special experience. I mean, beyond being the first lead role that I ever really had on screen, but also um, the story itself, the fact that it was, a you know, a inspired by a, a true story and uh, and just really working with Amma and that incredible cast, um, you know, from Tom Wilkinson to Penelope <laughs> Wilton, Emily Watson. I mean, everybody was just so amazing. And as you say, we shot, you know, the first three weeks we shot in the Isle of Man, which was, you know, surreal, really. I think because the year that we shot it, of course, Kenwood House, the real Kenwood House where it's set was under renovations and completely covered in scaffolding. So we couldn't do anything there. So, um, you know, being, uh, you know, in the Isle of Man for three weeks it was kind of isolating <laughs> for the cast, but it was good because it meant we we all bonded. And then when we were able to come back to London, you know, and shoot at, you know, Chiswick House or Scion Park or, you know, all those other gorgeous locations, you know, we'd all sort of had this amazing sort of uh, experience doing all the exteriors in the Isle of Man beforehand. So, yeah, it was, it was so special. I must ask you, so when you were in the Isle of Man, the beautiful yeah. Isle of Man, as we officially yes. did you did you take in any of the fabulous sites? Did you go, did you go to Lax and Wheel? You know me, Sarah Gadden, James Norton and Sam Reed one day went for a walk and we got completely lost and it pissed it down with rain and then we had to like shelter in a wood i mean it was it was kind of ridiculous it was like sort of i don't know famous five or something it was we were <laughs> out there in the middle of nowhere uh, i think we got attacked none of us could drive or you know we got taxi to some sort of cliff area and it was just the most stunning landscape and then i remember on the way back the first time ever that i saw like a double rainbow um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So it was just it was so so stunning and uh, yeah that was really all that we uh, we were able to do we went to some cool fish restaurants um but it was it was relatively it was relatively li limited uh, um <laughs> at the time um in terms of our sort of extracurricular social activities over there <laughs> well you know Gugu, you're always welcome back in the Isle of Man you know anytime and of course Thank if, you, if, you. If, if you would like a Wait, guide um, and there is one thing I remember also yes. there was a bridge that you go over Fairy and bridge. you have to Say something to the fairies or something. Uh, what now? Can, what's that? Yeah, so, okay, so, so it's a fairy bridge. And uh, yes. but, okay, but technically, saying good morning, fairies, good afternoon, fairies. Yes. Yeah, but technically, slightly touristy. My grandfather. Would, yeah. would drive in a car with a hat in the car because he had one of those big kind of you know Austins, and he would just lift his hat. He would lift his hat, and as we would go over the bridge, we'd say good afternoon, fairies, and he'd go tourists. 
It was, it was like, it was, it was like, but, but granddad, we, you have to say, no, tourist, you tip your hat. Well, cause I don't wear a hat, but so, right. every, so even now, and then there was a thing that for ages and ages, there, there wasn't a sign. And then they put a sign up that said fairy bridge. And my, oh. my grandfather was just outraged. Livid. Outraged. Livid. No, I remember we just thought we just didn't quite, you know, we were being driven, you know, to set and everything. And the driver would always say that. And we'd Morning fairies. just, be like, what yeah. is going on? <laughs> no, no, well, I, well, I still do. And it's I mean, the I culture. Do, it's the culture. Yeah, well, I do it, and it, you, do, you do it. The, the the point at which you know you're doing it is when you do it in the car on your own. When you're it's not, you're not doing it to impress somebody else. You're doing it That's because you can't possibly drive over Ferry Bridge without going to the ferries. And then I can hear my grandfather telling me off because lifting his hat and going tourist. <laughs> Anyway, Gugu, thank you ever so much for uh, for coming on the show. It's been uh, lovely oh, to have you. As I said, I advise everybody to see Misbehaviour on uh, on streaming services and to download it. And uh, I wish you all the best in, in LA. It looks like you're doing very well with your painting in your isolation. And, One uh, tries, but keep creative, you know. <laughs> God bless. Thanks ever so much, Gugu. Stay Thanks, well. Mark. Take care. It's not you we're angry at. I look forward to having your choices in life. But it's all just flash bobs in your face. Not so many flashbulbs for me. I don't want you to think I'm some kind of brute that doesn't consider the feelings of women. I consider feeling women all the time. Forget this. Tonight may be the start of something, Bob. This competition makes us compete with each other and makes the world narrower for all of us in the end. Why should any woman have to earn her place in the world by looking a particular way? You don't. He doesn't. Why should we? That was the trailer for Misbehaviour starring our guest Gugu Mbata-Raw. You can currently find the movie at home digitally from a range of different platforms. Thanks ever so much to Gugu Mbata-Raw for giving us her time. Coming up next, two of the stars of one of my favourite films of the year, Calm With Horses, an extraordinary Irish drama with brilliant performances and it's the feature debut by upcoming director Nick Rowland. I spoke to Neve Algar and Cosmo Jarvis, stars of Calm With Horses. First, let's hear a clip from the film. We understand the arm here has given him a taste, but we think it's now time to finish the job. No, don't do that. Not to that sort of business, you know what I'm saying? It's time to get into that business, if you know what I'm saying. The muscle, young Armstrong. If what happened to that child happened to your young fellow outside, would you leave the matter as it is? This is my business, I'll fucking sort it, Jeremy. Your father, God rest him, would never have let it in there. He'd be ashamed to see what you're doing to the devil's name. Yeah, he'd be embarrassed of you. If you can't control your side, everything falls apart. And we're done. How much does Fanagan know about us, huh? About our end of the operation. This is simpler than you think. Get the halfway to do it. Sort this out, nephew. For all our sakes. Why, what do you think you're gonna fucking do? <laughs> well, we shouldn't have to. 
delighted to welcome to the show uh, Neven Cosmo. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is a virtual MK3D because obviously we're in strange circumstances. Begin by telling us, Neve, first, where are you? I'm in the Midlands in Ireland in the worst hit signal for Wi-Fi uh, in Ireland. <laughs> So if you think that Camel Horses was remote, this is a hell of a lot remoter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm in East London. I, I mean, I'm just in bog standard East London. Yeah. Inside. I don't know what the weather's like yet. <laughs> <laughs> Cosmo, you appear to be inside. I know it's in your home, but you appear to be inside an entire recording studio. And I, I know you're a musician, but I'm very pleased to see that just the level <laughs> of knobs, amplifiers and kipple that you have behind you. This is none of it's mine. I live I live with another musician, luckily, and he, um, he's <laughs> he's not here at the moment, but he said we can use his um, amazing space. So I'm really happy about that. <laughs> yeah but it is kind of we have to be very careful i'm constantly in fear of breaking anything and i have no idea how to use that really it just looks cool <laughs> Neve, on the other hand you have a you have a fantastically uh it's, it's like you thought about the shot it's like you know well, no it's because you... there was so many there was so many condiments there was like ketchup and everything right here <laughs> uh, and salt and pepper so i just for the shot i've moved them <laughs> Well, I don't know. That I wanted to get like some sort of sponsorship deal with Heinz. <laughs> there is oh a the, there is a whole thing going on at the moment that apparently whenever people are interviewed on news subjects, you know, very important news subjects, all the audience are looking at is what do their blinds look like? What have they got on their bookshelves? You know, it, what's going on in the back? And it's it's incredible. It's made everybody a complete sticky beak for everybody else's house. <laughs> yeah. You're just going, ooh. That's interesting. It's like a Truman show no. when you are, when you can order you can order everything inside the Truman show. <laughs> <laughs> Yours looks catalog. cool. Yours is like themed with like music and film. I'm, I'm just in a kitchen. <laughs> this is just one room. If I leave this room, I'm just back in a boring house that I know like the back of my hand now. I mean, I did before anyway, but now I just know it even better. I'm just, yeah, please kill me. So how are you both bearing up under this? Are you managing to get any any work done? Are you managing to get any rehearsal or writing done? Neve, do you want to kick off? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely been a good time to read loads, that's for sure. Projects that, like, you know, looking long-term in development. So to be have conversations kind of this early on with writers has been really interesting. But then... I don't know, you can kind of, it's, you can kind of get lost in the idea of like being unavailable, you know, just no one can get you. So you're, it's, it's time to like do stupid things, like watch box sets back to back. And, but I don't know, I like to be busy and I like to, I like people. So this is, this has been the weirdest time to just have so much time to think. But I'm telling you, the minute I get back on set, I will never take anything, anything ever again for granted. <laughs> Cosmo, you making music? What are you doing? Um, I, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm trying to just, you know, do the dishes when there are dishes to do them. Um, shower regularly, um, <laughs> things like that. Um, that yeah, you look really well. <laughs> normal. <laughs> Thank you. So do you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just I'm sort of. I went for a skate yesterday. I'm trying to save up my exercise points. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just weird, isn't it, for everyone? Now, when you say escape, you mean uh, – bear in mind you're talking to somebody who is twice your age. Do you mean <laughs> a, a skateboarding expedition? 
a skateboarding expe expedition. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have, but I went into central London and just ripped around Leicester Square and it was amazing because it was abandoned and I wish that I'd known in hindsight that it was going to be that abandoned. I'm sure lots of people do because the amount of opportunities you could have had for filming an apocalyptic scene is just... Anyway, skateboarding around an abandoned city is really great. Everything looks like the opening scene of Danny Boyle's 28 Days uh, Later, <laughs> yeah. and which is weird because, of course, the way they shot that was they did it at five o'clock in the morning and they had like 20 minutes in which they, they just had loads of different angles. But I've seen picture, people have taken pictures of central London. I said, I'm, I'm out in, in Hampshire, yeah. I'm out in the New Forest. People have sent me pictures of it and it's like, have you ever seen London this empty before? Yeah. It's really yeah. unusual. It's now, crazy. Because one of the things that this has meant is that Calm With Horses, which I, 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 I'm, I'm not just saying this because I reviewed it many weeks ago when it first came out. I'm a real fan of Calm With Horses. I think it's terrific. In fact, funnily enough, you had your premiere at the BFI on the same night that we'd had the 50th MK3D show, the last one before this. And I, Cosmo, I bumped into you at the... Yeah. In the yeah, and I was in the bar and I was raging and I missed you, Mark. Oh, you were there? I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't even know you were at the bar. Yeah, myself and Barry went to get um, just a glass of water for the, uh, the Q&A. And oh, uh, we heard you popped in. We were sickened. Uh, yeah. Well, look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of the, of the film and I, you know, I, I reviewed it when it came out and I liked it very much. And of course, what's now happened is that it's come to digital. People can watch it digitally from, the, from, from today, in fact. And... Uh, do you want to say something about the film? Because I've tried to describe it and I've tried to kind of write about it, but it's very much a character piece and a mood piece and it's really powerful. Do you want to both say something about your characters? Neve, do you want to go first? I'd say watch Mark's review on Camel Horses because you, su you, you summed it up the best in your review show before everything, um, you know... Kicked off. Kicked off, yeah. <laughs> um, just about what you said about it is definitely a character piece and it, it follows Arm who he's complete like these characters so submerged into their surroundings that it was I don't know this, yeah I don't know you just you, you summed it up so beautifully Mark <laughs> <laughs> It is, yeah, it's a tr it's a tricky one to to say something like that to um, to summarize. I yeah, I I think people should hear what you said, but then mm. also I'd say it's uh I think it has a lot of um, entertainment dif different entertainment applications depending on where you're coming from, and some of them are more traditional. But then also you might go and and, and it's and it's got a lot of subtextual sort of possible angles that you might not have expected a film with a marketing campaign like this to have to to have within it yeah that's what i'd say one of the things that you have to get right for that film to work cosmo is your accent now obviously neve you're playing closer to home how was cosmo's accent to my ear it sounded great but i'm you know i have a tin ear did, did he pull it off yeah he convinced everyone he convinced all the crew on set as well like he, he stayed in accent or maybe that's just because I think there's a lot more pressure when you're filming in the location and the crew and the cast and everyone is Irish, but it was so spot on. Like there was people in, in, in around the town. We were, we were shooting this little rural town in Ireland and everyone had, had met Cosmo before, like either down the local shop because he was just immersing himself in, in, in the culture. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was pitch perfect. So, so was yours, Nee. Thank, Thank you for saying you. that. Thank, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I have, to, I have to say one of the most remarkable things is I'd seen Lady Macbeth too, and I didn't know much about um, 
calm with horses before I started watching it. I, I was watching it for 10 minutes before I recognized you. I mean, it was a good <laughs> 10 minutes that performance. I did not realize you were the same guy because everything, and it's not just to do with the accent, it's to do with the posture, the character. I mean, I'm very interested in physical acting and the way that you carry arm is so physically different to the character I'd seen you in in Lady Macbeth, which again was a film I really, really loved. It, I, I thought it was a really transformative performance. How do you, how do you, do, uh, how do you research that physicality? Um, uh, there was a lot of just like the, the, trying to find the, the, what you might usually be or might usually seem as just a useful tidbit about something related to, to like either the occupation or the environment of the character. So somebody said something about the posturing. I can't remember who now. But then I, I had never thought about anything to do with the boxing world before or anything like that. But, and even though it's not uh, hugely present in the narrative, I knew that obviously that was useful to try and ascertain the roots of the guy. So um, people would say that there's a tendency to like lean forward. So little, little details like that and just looking at people, I guess. And yeah, but I do love finding out or uh, exploring those kind of areas of, of characters. It's one of my favorite things to do. Now, yeah. Niamh, in terms of the character that you play, she is kind of the, you know, the, the heart of his attentions and his affections. But she, she also, she has to be a tough character. She's a character who's, you know, defending her child. And she yeah. knows that, you know, she kind of, she's still, they're still kind of in love with each other on one hand. But she knows that what's happened to Arm is that he's now kind of tethered to this other family. I mean, is that, how, how difficult is it to play a character who is that strong and also at the same time that kind of tender and that sensitive because she has to be the central focus of everything that's happening i think it's just jack has become her entire world and anything then that becomes between him and um, anything that, yeah that, that comes between him she will go through it and also it's it was made i had to make sure that i kept in mind that you know ursula has a history that you know, she is not too far from from Arm. You know, there was a time when the people whom she, you know, hung out with probably were close enough to the Devers. So for her, she just was making sure that she didn't ever take a step back. And, you know, it was, it's either going to be, you know, she, she would, I think it's just, it was maintaining that vulnerability and that strength, but also she does have her own flaws and it's, it's easy to, I think for, for her to fall into that. But yeah, I think it was also just making sure that these two characters still and still possibly can have a future together, that it wasn't completely dead in the water. And, and myself and Cosmo did a lot of kind of pre pre work and, and creating their history together and, and how, how they, how they met up. And, you know, these, these are two young loves and just, they've just taken completely two different paths in life. So when yeah. you do that, do you, do you literally create a backstory for the characters of stuff that happened to them before, before we meet them in the film? Yeah. A lot of it's random conversation based and yeah. it could, could have been, and, or I reckon it was, or I think it was, or maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And then, and then a lot of it, the untangible side is, I think was just, formed on many conversations and, 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 and getting an actual kind of, you know, 
something that resembles a history, but in mm. actual social happenings that were recent that we had just as two people in real life. That sounds like yeah. it doesn't even mean anything, but it meant... <laughs> no, but there was, I was like, when I first met Cosmo, I was like, I, I totally got who he was as an actor. And um, just I knew he would be very open to just hanging out. And we actually did that when we got, when I, when I flew back to Ireland, we literally went to this like corner shop, bought like a bag of cans. <laughs> I think it was like cider and like cheap crisps and just sat by the canal and just chatted. And it was you like Cosmo had gotten like a costume that was very much arms and was wearing it. And it was just easy to just kind of slip in and, and, and create stories and, and conversations that these two characters would have had and just getting to know one another as Neve and Cosmo and you just build upon that. And I think it, it, the most important thing was just building trust. So when these two people are exploding in one another, that you're not afraid to like step over the line. And, and if you do, it's, you can easily just kind of tap someone's shoulder and it's like, just let's go again. Or I'm sorry that yeah. I said that, but yeah. I think and it's really, it's really trust. valuable too. Cause you, whatever that you do gain, and there is something that you do gain from interactions like that, but whatever that you do gain, you can't you can't forget it and leave it behind once the scene started. So it's very recognisable that it does get it does get brought along, whether you like it or not. The, the the history that you've built in real life into whatever work you're doing when when the cameras are rolling. So yeah, the third part of this relationship is obviously the young child. Can you both say something about working with your young co-star and how you develop that relationship? Was going to go first. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I, 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 at first, I was, I was nervous, but um, well, after meeting he, Killian's really like he's a confident lad. He's outgoing. He doesn't take any. You can't get anything past him. Like he's wiser than he's definitely wiser than I am. Um, so it was great, and he kind of keeps kept me on. Our, and we hung out with him a lot before to try and yeah. um, set him at ease for any. Because it was, I think, yeah, it's his first time, so it would. We everybody knew that it would be quite, um, quite an experience for a, a lad that age to come. How old is he? I think at the time he must have been what is five. Five. He was five when, yeah, we were five. Five when we were shooting it, but I can remember it's, I, I was watching the scene where he. It's just after he has a meltdown at, at the fair, and you know he he fully goes for it, and he was like. Mm. He's fearless. I think that's it. When you're like five years old, you're fearless. And he understands, you know, when you call action, we're playing. And once we call cut, he yeah. picks up a ball and then we start playing football. So it was, it was actually really lovely to, to have a kid on set because people, I think, behave a lot better. <laughs> and days <laughs> yeah. are shorter. <laughs> so is that right? Everybody, does everybody mind their P's and Q's if there's a minor on the set? Does everybody just a little bit? Yeah. A hell of a lot more than the rest of the embarrassing the kid that, Like... <laughs> But also, like from an acting perspective, he's like, if you're faking, he knows, you know, which is, and he'll tell you too. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I like the one that you did before that better. You know, he's very, um, he, he's got, he, 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 he's not uh, new to critical thinking in, in art mm. stuff. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your director because it's his first feature and it's, it's such a confident piece that it has, the film has a real kind of widescreen kind of epic scope to it despite the fact that it's a very intimate story so tell me about him and, and what it was like working with him well when i first read this script i was i was familiar with colin's story and then joe had adapted it and then i'd watched some of um nick's shorts and i kind of knew that no matter what the story despite it being this crime 
Thriller was definitely going to have this strong heartbeat throughout it. And Nick is a very, he's a very emotional and, and approachable guy. And, but then he's, you know, like there's a scene in it with the car chase and it's one of the yeah. best car chases I've ever seen. And then Nick is like, oh yeah, I was a professional rally driver when I was 12 years old. You're like, mm. what? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I found out the rally driver thing, it was a real surprise to me because I, you know, I was kind of imagining because it's a very characterful piece. And then suddenly there is this car chase and I'm thinking, <laughs> this is like the French connection. And then somebody said, oh yeah, well, he was a driver. No, that has to be somebody at Google. It, it's, there's no way somebody who used to, you know, do that kind of driving. But no, apparently that's the case. Cosmo, what was he like to work with? Yeah, uh, he's uh, an anomaly as far as people that I've met just in general, regardless of whether they're film directors. He's a really like gentle dude, and and he always cares about the emotional core of what's going on first and foremost. And 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 and, and he takes a great deal of time trying to find the right, right, trying to find ways to articulate the emotional core of what he's after, and yeah. and. And despite the sort of subject matter of everything in the movie, and like you say, the, the darkness and some of the emotional stakes, and he's he he, he it's actually the 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 simple emotional core that's always like his chief concern. And um, so yeah, it's it was really good. It was crazy for all of us, but I mean, he was yeah really um, careful. I would say with his actors. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really liked about the film, and I know obviously this is a post-production thing, is the Blank Mass soundtrack, which I just yeah. thought was so, it was so much the heart of it. When did you first hear any of that music? I'm assuming you hadn't heard it whilst you were no. doing the scenes. Toronto Film Festival. Yeah. The, so when we the saw them, yeah. yeah. Wow. So what yeah. was that like to see it and suddenly hear that music for the first time? You kind of want to watch it again with just your eyes closed. It's so submersive and the build in it is, is I don't know what, what they've done and how they've created some of the tensions within those scenes, especially there's a scene with Cosmo just by himself in the, on, at the end on the phone. I think there's just this very underlying little build of, this is a violin play. No, I'm not going to get that wrong. But it draws you in. I think the music draws you in just like the cinematography. It's very bold. Like the color, color, the music and the color kind of blend beautifully. Where one, where it seems are silent, the music is quite powerful, impactful. Yeah, so like the, the music does feel like, the, the grade feels like, like, I know this isn't supposed to be an insult to anybody or anything like that, but it is weird how the, like, the colors of the movie do fit with the music of the movie in a weird way from a, from a synesthesia point of view. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that the, the, the you know the the colours of the cinematography are absolutely matched by the score. And I remember one the, the first time I saw it, I you know I immediately got in touch and said, look, can I can I download a copy of that score because it's it feels like the heartbeat of the film. So did you both see the film for the first time with a festival audience? Were you both at Toronto? Yeah. 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 Okay, that must yeah. be really anxiety-inducing if you haven't seen it before. What was that like as an experience to see? And also, Toronto, it's not like a small film festival, it's Toronto. <laughs> Cosmo? Oh, uh, yeah, well, it's fairly <laughs> petri petrifying. And it, um, yeah, just gets scary. And, but at the same time, there's that feeling, and I've heard it from direct other directors before, um, only, only directors I've heard this from, where there comes a point where you have to just accept that there's nothing you can do anymore. And in yeah. a few minutes, everybody's going to be watching it. And so that's, that's what I, I, I sort of took that leaf out of um, Nick's book and just 
you know, and then get on with it and then come out the other side and yeah, very nerve wracking. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, there's nothing you can do. You can't change anything. It's not like a play where you come in after the second act and, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to change it slightly. There's no, there's no changing. Um, but I suppose you get enough distance, unlike Nick and the producers and in the edit, as an actor, you, you finish your job on the last day of filming and then you get enough distance that when you go back to it, you can actually look at it objectively. Um, and I definitely, you know, because there's so many scenes that like each of our, well, like Cosmo, I think pretty much is in every scene. So, you know, you sit there with such pride because what he had done and what Cosmo had brought to the role was surpassed anything that I'd read in the script. So I'm going to ask both of you this, and it's no names, no pack drill. So it must have been great watching the film and it was terrific and it, and it was great to see something that works. Do you both have a memory of having made something that when you saw it, you went, oh, man. <laughs> like across our careers? Yeah. Oh, uh, you don't need to tell me what it is, you know, because I know, you know, but just can you remember seeing, have you made something that you've looked at afterwards and thought, God, that wasn't good? No. Something that, something that no. I've been involved with. Yeah. That I've looked at and gone, oh, that wasn't good. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. And how do you how do you react to it? Because I mean, I'll, the reason I ask is, I mean, I will look like if I've got like a, a book that I've written or something, and I'll look at it, and I literally, I just want to die. I just want to crawl under a rock and you know, and just expunge it from the face of the earth. But I've met so many actors who just said, "Yeah, well, you know, you take the knocks and you just get on to the next one because if you don't, you can't do the job." Yeah, that's also true, mm. and it's it's a very paradoxical state of existence. But in in that respect, but yeah, it, but also if you were to be all right with what you're doing, then you're stagnant and you're not getting, you're you're just cool with what you're doing, and and that's also equally as scary as being constantly never everything you're doing never being good enough. They're both as scary to me as each other. Neve, it's a good answer, Cosmo. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think I've I've actually been surprised more that you know you where you have to trust. Because what, like, the thing is, is that when, yeah, I think the worst thing was that when you give, when you give an option of, of, of a, of a scene where, you know, you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to just try something here. I'm just going to try it. And then that'll be, the, that'll be the scene they use in, in the, in the edit. And you're kicking yourself because you're like, damn, why did I give an option? Um, so that's, that's been more times than, than none. Um, yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah, you've got no control. You've got as an actor, I've just learned that you 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 lose all control after after you finish filming. You lose all control of that story. You know they can and and, and you're just hoping that you have an amazing editor who's can who can actually edit something better than what you've done. <laughs> Which in our case was Mr. Tratos, legend, yeah. Adonis. Yeah. <laughs> so, so listen so as i said the film is, is now available for people to watch uh, digitally and i my suggestion would be that if you watch it at home just make sure you you know you watch it from beginning to end with the curtains closed and the yeah. sound turned up and you know kind of recreate that cinema experience what are you both doing from now for the next couple of months into do you have plans are you because obviously we this isn't going to go away anytime in the immediate future so are you managing to sort of think ahead and plan ahead. And are you both looking forward to getting back and getting back into cinemas? Yeah. Hopefully. I cannot wait. I hate, 
you know, you like you really looked forward to watching a film in the cinema. <laughs> it just the discipline I think that takes to just sit there in silence with complete. I just I love going to cinema by myself. Um, and now you're watching films with your family that, and you realise they've got the attention span of a toddler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think now has just been the time. Like I'm developing something where it's a it's a true life story, so that's been really interesting to just try and research and get it as right as you can. And especially if you're given the time, there's going to be no no excuse when you start filming. Cosby. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I'd just love to. I mean, I'll do anything, anything to keep busy right now. But I've I've been working on a few things that I can just occupy myself with. Some sort of absurdist sci-fi script. I don't know if that's going to ever work. But um, yeah, you know, stuff. But everybody's just goosed, so it's cool. Like I don't know, just ringing out my agent every day. Like, all right, Kim, how's life? And <laughs> I just check, keep checking in with her and. So long as Kim's at the end of the phone, then everything will be fine. Let me ask you both one final thing. The film has been really well received and it's got lovely reviews. Do you care about reviews and do reviews ever hurt? And again, I say this as, you know, and I'm a critic, obviously, but I've had terrible reviews. One of the first documentaries I ever made was a documentary about The Exorcist, which is like the scariest film ever made. And the Daily, Tele Daily Telegraph, I think it was, said the scariest thing about this documentary is that creepy guy presenting it. So have you ever been hurt by, yeah, Cosmo, believe me, we've all been there, you know. So yeah. have you ever been hurt by a review? This is going to sound like I'm fishing for, for but honestly, Mark, it's your review that I value the most, honestly. Because <laughs> you're usually pretty spot, you, you are very spot on about, about stuff. And I usually listen to, I usually, if I'm going to go watch a film or watch a TV series, I'll watch it and then I'll read the reviews. Yeah, I'll commode it. I honestly do commode it. Yeah, commode it, yeah. <laughs> Genuinely. Yeah. Or, you, but the thing is, with like Twitter, like public, people usually don't go to Twitter to like compliment people. They usually just want to vent. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's important to like, obviously, you need to listen, you need to listen to both sides of it. So you, need to, you need to read the good one and the bad and take from it what you will, but try not to take it too personally. But luckily for Camel Horses, the reviews across the board have been really positive. Well, I don't know how anybody doesn't take anything. I mean, I take everything personally. There was a, I did this Secret of Cinema series recently and there was a glowing review in the Times and it said, this is the only thing I remember about the review, right? It was maybe 300 words of saying how fabulous the program was. And then it said, presented by the heavy set film critic. Heavy set, right? Heavy that's just like saying fat. That's literally, oh. and that's the only thing I took away from that from that review. Three hundred words of how fabulous it was, and all I took away from it was heavy set, heavy set. Heavy set. Yeah, they're they're brutal. They're so cruel. <laughs> mm. <sighs> Sorry about that. That's terrible. <laughs> anyway, listen, guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Stay safe, stay home, protect the NHS, all the rest of it. And I really hope that Calm with Horses gets a great um, audience uh, on digital because it really deserves oh. to. It's shaping up as one of my favourite films of the year. And I hope that when all this is all finished. <coughs> you'll both come on the show live back at the BFI South Bank and we can do this in person and we can have the, the drink that we didn't manage to have before. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank, thank you so much, Mark. Thanks so much, Mark. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. My final guest this week is, of course, Jack Howard. Now, Jack and I had recorded a couple of podcasts before lockdown happened, but since then we've only been in contact through the internet. So it was great to welcome Jack to the first online MK3D show, during which he made a startling confession. But we started off by talking about how he's coping in isolation. I mean, the thing that I'm enjoying most about self-isolation is, we talked about it a little bit on the podcast, is the the sense of community that still exists around film. Like I've, I'm a part of so many what we're calling self-isolation film clubs. And I know that people are doing these in a public way as well, but me and my friends are sort of got these little WhatsApp groups and we're all getting together and, and watching films that sometimes people have never seen. And I think that now is a good time to be watching films that we've never seen before. And I, so I made a video. Watched? Well, I've been binging a lot of Steven Soderbergh stuff, yeah, um, okay. but actually because uh, I, I mean I've just been enjoying his filmography but what I wanted to mention was that it's people who are like coming to me and being like so I've never seen Jaws um, <laughs> and I think that now might be the time to watch Jaws and and I was like right okay so we, we you know we got together and a bunch of us watched that and sort of ticked that off the, the bucket list um, but what I wanted to bring up with you about this this sort of time that we haven't seen movies and movies that we should see and I've got a fair few that I think I'm ashamed that I haven't seen, but I wanted to confess something to you okay. specifically. Okay. This is going to be, and I've I never want, seen The Exorcist. I've never seen The Exorcist. I, I knew, I just, sorry, just, I just, I'm, I'm sorry to, but I, I just knew the way that you said that, that that was what you were going to say because you've never said that to me before. And that's it. I, I, and I thought I, I'd do it now from a safe distance. <laughs> I saw, I just suddenly had this, I knew that that was what you were going to say. You've never seen the Exorcist. Yeah, I've never seen the Exorcist. No. Have you never seen it on purpose, or have you just never seen it by accident? I have. Well, actually, recently when you did an MK3D, yeah, because um, who who passed away recently? Who's in the Exorcist? Max von Sydow. That's correct. And you showed a clip of it in mm. the MK3D show, and I and it was brand new to me. I'd never seen. I've I've, I've avoided most things from the Exorcist. I know the head spinning, vomiting stuff, yeah, like. Yeah but I know very little about The Exorcist. Okay. Well, here, okay, here's the, the main thing. And funnily enough, I'm, in a way, I'm kind of glad to hear you say I've never seen it and that you've avoided it. The worst thing that anyone can say is, I've seen bits of it. I saw mm. some of it. It was on television and I watched the first half of it. Because in a way, all that does is spoil the experience of the film. I don't, I don't care whether people like it or not, but what I care is that they watch it from beginning to end as the film was intended to be. So in fact... What you're doing is 
often now I've got over the shock of I've never seen The Exorcist. <laughs> what you're doing is actually fine because you've never seen The Exorcist, which means that you, the worst thing to do is to have seen all the bits, to have seen all the stuff, because, it, you know, like everything else, it's passed into popular mythology. So everyone knows about the head spinning, which is actually the silliest moment in the film. Everyone knows about the vomiting, which is really brief and fleeting. You know, it's like five seconds in total, probably but it's everything else that matters about the film. So what I would say, so are you going to use this isolation time to do that? Are you going to watch The Exorcist? No, <laughs> I've come this far. No, I, yeah, I, I wanted to bring it up with you specifically because I wanted to be like, I'm setting the intention now. I've never seen it. And now I think is the time to do it. And then the next okay. time we have a conversation, we'll have a little discussion about, about The Exorcist. Because okay. I think you've okay. still got stuff to say, even after all this time. Oh no! I mean, believe me, I do. I've got lo- I've got loads of stuff to say, you know, and it's, it's terrifying how much. I- so, to two things. Firstly, which version are you going to watch? Oh, I didn't even know this was an option. Yeah. Is it like a Blade Runner situation? It, well, there's only two. So there's the version, the original version. Um, mm-hmm. Although, although actually on DVD, even the original version is slight, very slightly cleaned up and altered, and, and there's and then there's the version you've never seen which of course I have seen, um, which is the version which... You, so, so the short version of this is when they first made the film, there were some scenes that were in there. And then at the very last stage of the editing, Friedkin took them out. And they were specifically scenes that kind of... There were some theological scenes, scenes about discussion about what's going on. And also just some things which broadened the characters and the scene at the end that gives the film a sense of closure, a, a first doctor's examination that um, Blatty really thought if you take it out, it destroys the carpentry of the story. And Friedkin never wanted that. Well, he, did, he took those scenes out because he thought they were slowing the action down. And because he was told by John Callie, look, everyone knows the girl isn't possessed. Why are you telling them that she's possessed? You know, that, that, that it's a medical thing. We all know it isn't. It's film's called The Exorcist. Um, and then Blatty for years and years and years said that these scenes were really important i interviewed blatty i said to him whatever happened to them and he said i don't know i think they're probably lost years later nick and i and nick jones and i made a documentary the fear of god in which we went back to warners we saw all that we found all the missing scenes they were nearly all existed there was some sound tapes that were missing from some of the last ones we also found the spider walk which is famously this special effect that hadn't been used in the film partly because it didn't work at the time because you could see the wires of the character coming downstairs and then um, I did an interview with uh, Blatty and Freakin in which, you know, they, Freakin reasserted once again that he wouldn't, he wouldn't go back and put these things in. He quoted this famous story by the French Impressionist painter Bonnard, Bonnard being arrested in the Louvre with a paintbrush touching up one of his paintings. And the guards, oh, wow. ar- the guards arrested him and he said, but I'm Bonnard. And they said, it's hanging on the walls of the Louvre, pal. Walk away. <laughs> and this was, this was Freakin's whole thing. And then actually he then recanted and he did then put the scenes back in, including the spider walk. And, um, and then there was the version you've never seen. So Bill Blatty, the screenwriter, always preferred the version you've never seen, which has got some sort of extra dramatic scenes in it. Freakin, I think at the time, actually thought that that version was better. My advice to you, however, and I love that version. I love the longer version because I was so invested for so long in those scenes being put back in again. However, I would say this, if you're going to watch it for the first time, watch the original version just to understand what the film was. Because then I think if you go back and watch the longer version, you can see how it's, for for my money, it's it's more rounded, it's more fulfilled in terms of the character definitions. But the original version... How come you would recommend watching the original version instead of that if you think that there's, there's more to be gained out of the longer version? 
because there is um i think there is a the best way of describing it is there is a brutality to the original version which is like being run over by a truck and the right. second version is much is more thoughtful and it has more space to breathe freaking said this really interesting thing i'm sorry i'm going on about this but freaking said this really no i'm interesting very interested thing. in all of this mark you don't need to apologize <laughs> but when he was cutting the exorcist what he wanted to do was he wanted to cut out any moment in which the audience could stop and go hang on a minute mm. and so he was worried at first he didn't know that the film worked as well as it did and so the first version of the exit the version that stood for 25 26 however many years it was it re just i mean although it's kind of got a slow build-up in terms of its narrative pace in terms of most horror films when it's when it gets into the exorcism so i mean it's just it just moves it's it's like a shark i mean it's like jaws um you know it just rests you to the ground and the the version you've never seen for me is actually is more I think is slightly richer in terms of its character development. But I'm just always conscious that when people haven't seen it, it, it the, the 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 version that packs the the heftiest punch is uh, is probably the original version, just because it's so unforgiving. The, right. The re the recut version has is a is a much is a softer experience i prefer it because of that but in a way to kind of understand I mean, you have to understand that i lived with the original version for however many years it was before seeing the full version and then thinking that's the version i always wanted but i still i can't deny the power of the original version it's interesting that um somebody went back that late and did a, a, a recut of something is that i mean is that the latest that you can um, you can think of somebody going back and changing because i know obviously george lucas is famous for it in terms of touching up the star <laughs> wars films completely unnecessarily and changing all of its oscar-winning sound design and <laughs> putting in cgi spaceships into 1970s cinema that doesn't make any sense at all and having harrison ford tween anime over Jabba the Hutt's in a completely unnecessary scene, like awful. And then obviously the good example of it is Blade Runner, where actually three versions, I believe, there's Blade Runner, the final At cut, least. and the director's cut, and then the final cut, I think. Yeah. Um, all of which changed the film ever so slightly and obviously massively in terms of like where it leaves you and the ending. But does The Exorcist change that much well the okay the interesting thing is that in all the cases that you're that you're citing um i mean specifically with blade runner ridley scott was never happy with the first version of blade runner it the first version of blade runner wasn't the director's cut the first version of blade yeah. runner was a cut that they arrived at after disastrous tests i know the famous story of harrison ford phoning in the voiceover because yeah. he just, it was like I, I don't think they'll use it. <laughs> but okay, here's the weird thing. That story comes from a documentary that I made. It comes from on the edge. Oh, of really? Run. Yeah, and it's told. That story is told by Katie Haber. Harrison Ford has subsequently um, somewhat poo-pooed that story. Um, the producer who we who we spoke to said, I, "That's just that story is not true. It is definitely true that the I am Eckhart and I am an android hunter it does sound. It's the but, ending but, for me. It's the it's the she was a replicant." with no with no uh, expiration dates yeah, like it's, yeah. it's all that sort of like i don't i'm just reading it once it reminds yeah, me of yeah. crusty the clown doing voices in uh, in the simpsons just coming in reading them off and then going learn from a professional kid and then leaves before yeah, the tapes yeah yeah no the i mean the ending is ridiculous and you know that the ending of the original version of blade runner uses from the shining 
out takes from, yeah it's absolutely crazy um uh, because he just they just needed some <laughs> needed some footage which i know, would love to be able to hear that conversation like stanley mate it's ridley uh <laughs> got any shots studios of messing me about i know you did a, a, a load of footage of mountains have you got any you didn't use <laughs> well what what um what the the editor said was that in that shot when um when the Deckard and Rachel go off out into the, you know, out into the wilds and they use the shot from the shining. What the editor said was if that shot had gone on 10 seconds longer, the Volvo would have come you would into have seen the, the shot. Car. Yeah. You literally would have seen the Volvo coming in to go up to the overlook hotel. And I've always said, you know, that would make a great double bill, but Blade Runner literally segues straight <laughs> into the beginning of the shining that they think that they're going off to this lovely place, but in fact, they're going off to the overlook hotel. <laughs> never had any problem with the original version of the exorcist. It was always his cut, which is why when, people wrongly refer to the new version as the director's cut it's not the director's cut if anything it's the writer's cut and that's why the version you've never seen is interesting because blatty blatty was always the one who said you need these extra scenes and Friedkin was always the one who said you don't and then Friedkin changed his mind and put them back in partly to satisfy blatty because he said i mean i interviewed him about this a lot he said i find blatty deserved to have his cut of the film and then I did ask Billy when, uh, you know, when the first cut had just newly been done, I said, how do you feel about it now? And he said, well, I think it's better. But he kind of implied, of course, I feel it's better, you know, because he because he just worked on it and because he put the stuff back. And I think it is, I think it is richer. But I also think that the first cut has, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those really weird cases in which I can argue for both versions. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it. I can argue for both versions. The most exciting thing for me was being in the Warner vaults. Um, and it was just after Christmas because I had, um, I had, I'd flown myself out there having these conversations with Bill Blatty and, um, and, and he said, they said that they're going to set up a screening of the outtake footage and then he didn't, he couldn't come and then Billy couldn't come. And so Bill Blatty said, you go, you go and have a look and you tell me what there is. So I paid my, I literally, I paid my own way out to America. Um, uh, and, uh, and I stayed in this absolutely wretched, uh, Econo Lodge hotel somewhere. Um, that when the studio found out where I was staying, they, I think they almost didn't let me in the front gate. Um, <laughs> and then I spent three days just sitting in the vaults watching this stuff. And the first time I watched Firstly, the conversation on the stairs between Karis and, uh, and Marion, in which Karis says it, ma- it, it makes no sense why this girl, which is actually much shorter than I expected it to be. And then the weird outtakes of what then became the spider walk. I remember thinking, this is, this is the strangest thing because Blatty and Freakin hadn't seen them yet. In fact, Freakin, wow. uh, there was a brilliant conversation with Freakin when we, were, when we were making Fear of God in which I said, Freakin said, um, well, the reason we never used the spider walk, we never shot it. And I said, yeah, you did. He said, no, we didn't. I said, Billy, I watched it. <laughs> I went, yeah, I, said, I literally sat in a room and watched it because, you know, he just he put it out. Because for him, he went on and did a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, that's the other thing you forget about filmmakers is that they've got a life. You know, it's us, yeah. it's you and me who obsess about this it's like you know it's like it's like people asking somebody who made a cult movie 30 years ago what did it mean when the character said so and so and the person in the movie's going mm-hmm. i don't know it meant it was time for tea and i wanted to finish the I've scene i've moved or- on <laughs> <laughs> i tell you i tell you another yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, on 
I'll tell you another one of those stories and I, then I will stop talking about this. Um, in The Wicker Man, there is a famous story that they didn't have, that because they shot at the wrong time of year, it's not summer, that they didn't have these orange trees. The, 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 um, the, the, the vehicle that, that, uh, that Edward Woodward's character is in is mo meant to go along this grove of little orange trees, and they didn't have very many of them. So um, Edward Woodward remembers that as they were Nicholas going Cage down this... No, this is the original version. This is I'm the original joking. version of... Um, <laughs> uh, oh, no, sorry, I beg your pardon. Sorry, it's a, a humour <laughs> bypass. You the Nick Cage story that, that Edward Woodward said. He said, oh, I met Nick Cage. And uh, Edward Woodward said to Nick Cage, oh, I hear, you, I hear you remade The Wicker Man. And Nick Cage said, yeah, and you got great reviews for my remake. <laughs> anyway, so Edward Woodward tells this story that they're going down the road and they've only got like six orange trees. And as they're going, there's a low loader running round the back, taking the last orange tree and putting it so they can go past it and then putting the next one oh, there. And then putting wow. The next one there. Here's what's interesting. I t Edward Woodward told that story. And I then repeated that story to the director of the film. It's not true. It didn't happen at all. That's absolutely not true. And I then went back to Edward Woodward and Edward Woodward said, well, if he says it's not true, then he's probably right. I remember it happening, but that doesn't mean it did. And I thought it was a lovely, a beautifully honest thing to say. You remember things, but they didn't yeah. necessarily happen. I, that's exactly, I mean, what that's making me think of is how, why I love Little Women so much and, and, and film that just deals with memory in, in general. We've been talking about Solaris quite a lot recently. And I think that film deals with that as well in a really beautiful way. And I've been writing a video at the moment, like a whole big uh, sort of analysis of Solaris and why I think it resonated so much with me. And that's part of the reason why is it's just about how people remember things weirdly and in Solaris in Steven Soderbergh's version of Solaris. Cause we don't, we don't I haven't even seen the longer Tarkovsky version, but not bothered. No, <laughs> but there's a bit where you're introduced to Raya for the first time. And well, the, the, the first time that George Clooney meets her for the first time and she's just holding a doorknob and it, you never find out why it's just this very quirky, weird little detail. And to me, that's just, he remembers her holding something odd. Like there's something that she was doing right. and that's what it sort of feels like to me. It feels like that story of just, Oh, I remember this weird thing happening, but I can't quite place what it was. Maybe it was this. Yeah, and then yeah. being honest about how your memory can sort of shift and change and, how you remember things affecting how you feel about things now. And yeah. I find that endlessly fascinating in cinema because I think it demonstrates it better than any other format can. Um, yeah. And something else I was thinking of as well is like, what would I want to go back? Like if I were to be able to talk to a filmmaker the way that you were, spoke, you were speaking to the director of The Exorcist and to really delve in deep and find more footage that exists. To me, and I'm such a child of my generation, I would love to be able to speak to Christopher Nolan and be like, I want to see the outtakes of the Joker. I want to see all the footage of Heath Ledger playing around on set with that character. Because what I love so much about that performance is that we only have the 30 minutes or so that are in the film. And if I've talked about this before, but I think if Heath Ledger had survived, number one, I think it's interesting to think about the fact that he, he might've been the star of Inception. Like, that probably would have happened. Um, just to think about how, coming off the back of the Dark Knight, I just reckon that's probably something that Nolan would have wanted to happen. And number mm -hmm. two, it probably would have got Jack Sparrowed and they would have just kept throwing money. I'm not saying that Heath Ledger would have done it, but I think that the joy of Jack Sparrow and the reason why, and we've talked about Pirates of the Caribbean before, but the joy of that mm -hmm. is it exists in that first film 
beautifully as this thing that was intended to be something else. And then Johnny Depp did something very unique with it. And I think that the Joker, if it were to continue into the sequels, maybe would have lost some of the beauty of it, that it's just, it just exists in that capsule. And there's, there's nothing we can do about that. But I have such a fascination with the idea of what do the alternate takes of the lines look like? Like, are there any (laughs) moments that are cut out? Like what, what, what does he look like when he's just playing with the city? Like, it would just be so fascinating to me to be able to see that process a little bit better. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know if there's anything I would change about it, obviously. I just, I'm just fascinated in seeing more of it. it. There's a weird thing, which is that that fascination of seeing the behind the scenes, uh, seeing, seeing the alternate takes. I know for a long time, you know, um, one of the things that Friedkin didn't want anyone to do was to see any of the behind the scenes stuff because he thought that it, you know, that somehow it would take the magic away from the movie. But I think one of the most amazing things about the exorcist is that I have literally taken it apart and mm-hmm. then put, and then you put it back together again and it works, you know, I've, I'm listening to the sound tapes of Linda Blair doing the original voice before Mercedes McCambridge was brought in, you know, all that stuff, but not, none of it, you take it apart, you put lay it all out on the floor in front of you like a jigsaw and then you put it back together again and it, and it still works. And I think that's the genius of those, of those films that are, they work despite how much you, you, you know about them, you know? Um, so look, just very quickly, because we've kind of, you know, gone off this, what have <laughs> you watched? What have you watched while you've been doing this? Um, so like I said, I've been watching a lot of Steven Soderbergh stuff. Uh, we talked about on the podcast that I completely reevaluated my opinion on Ocean's 12. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. so set against it. And now I, I think it's brilliant. And it's, it's something I completely understand now. Um, yeah, Solaris is something I've been watching a lot just because I've been pulling it That's apart. Um, and I still need to watch Haywire, which was your one of your picks. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I, I, I will watch The Exorcist is okay. going to be the top of my list now. All right, so look, should we should we now agree that the next blog we do together will be Jack's debrief of of the Exorcist? The, of the Exorcist, yeah. Let's let's do it. Okay, and you have to promise me, Jack, that you have to yes. promise me that you will watch it, that you will put it, you will start it, and you will let it play all yep. the way through from beginning to end, uninterrupted. I will absolutely do do that for you, and I'm I'm, I'm looking forward cool. to it. Like I, to to go and watch something like that and not know anything about it. Yeah, I'm super excited. The great Jack Howard talking to me as part of the online MK3D show that we did last week. As I said, that was a longer version of that interview. Next week, you can hear longer versions of the interviews with Greg Proops, Mira Sayal and Ben Roberts. Thanks ever so much for listening. Stay safe, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives and keep watching the skies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.